Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid, or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and welcome to Magnified with Matt Cooper. This is a podcast designed to spend a bit more time with the guests than I might normally have on my radio show, The Last Word. And on today's episode, we're joined by a businessman who started as a broadcaster, had a career in his own public relations firm, but then served as a director of some of the most influential 21st century Irish companies, including Anglo-Irish Bank with Sean Fitzpatrick and Paddy Power Bookmakers, where he was chairman. And now he campaigns against the insidious advance of gambling throughout society. And he was also a key advisor to former Taoiseach Brian Cog. I hope you enjoy this chat with Fintan Drury. Okay, Fintan Drury, thank you very much for joining me in the kitchen. Prompted very much by your book, Seesaw, A Perspective on Success, Leadership and Corporate Culture, which is a fascinating book, which you don't spare yourself in it, do you? I think when you get to 63 years of age and you've done as many different things as I've done and you've been involved in a whole range of different challenges, personally and professionally. Um, and if you're evaluating your your own performance as well as the, as the performance of others and you're trying to find themes that are relevant and of value perhaps to talk about or write about, um, you, your self-assessment is bound to uh, in, in include a degree of, of self-criticism. Is it? Because many successful businessmen try and go on a lap of honour when they actually write a memoir or if they write a self-assessment, they try and accentuate all of the positives and downplay any of the failings or negatives. It's not a memoir. Uh, and and I, I think my, my business career has been a mix of of some success uh, and quite a bit of failure. Um, so it, it would, even if it was just a memoir, it would have been a completely dishonest, fabricated uh, piece of, of work uh, if, if I, I simply you know, went on, on such a lap of honour as you described it. And ultimately, Matt, I started out life as a journalist, as you know, and um, part of what I talk about in the book is is the reason why I wrote it in large measure is a curiosity over the journey I made, but also some of the decisions I made in the course of that journey. So I'm, I'm not a typical business person reflecting on their business career. I'm, I'm somebody who who's, was always curious, whose experience as a, as a frontline Broadcast broadcaster in news and current affairs for seven or eight years meant that that curiosity was fomented and and developed further and refined further through the guidance of people uh, more experienced people I worked with at the time, and so all of that was always there it was latent it was hidden perhaps camouflaged during part of my time as a business person which is which is I think uh, part of my regret, but the curiosity. Is, is there. It's very powerful within me and in my character. And therefore, when I came to reflect on the, the, the years in business, it was bound to, bound to, to uh, penetrate my own performance as well as assess the performance of people I worked with. There's loads of things that we may not have time to get to from Seesaw, such as your work in sports sponsorship and sports agency, 
things I might come back to you another day on. We will talk. That's, that's the next book, man. <laughs> well, I've been fascinated to read that one. I do want to talk to you about politics, particularly your relationship with Brian Cowan in just a little while. I'm very interested in talking to you about gambling because I think you're taking a very principled position, perhaps belatedly, in relation to gambling. But I want to start with Sean Fitzpatrick. Uh, you were on the board of Anglo-Irish Bank for how many years? Six years. You were fortunate in that you were gone before the collapse. And that was purely a timing issue. Uh, you know, when the collapse happened, people, some people wondered whether, because I had finished six months previously, that I knew that there was something seriously awry and that I had left on that basis. I had left because I had finished my second three-year term. I had made it clear at the start of my time when I went on the board that I would only do two, two three-year terms. I made that very clear when I went on the board of Paddy Power at pretty much exactly the same time. And I wrote in my first chairman's statement uh, in, in Paddy Power annual report that I would only do two, three-year terms. And I think Why that's that important because you? I think it's very important that people people move on and that boards change and 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 there is definitely less so now, but there is there has been a a kind of tradition of people if they were doing or seem to be doing a good job of of those people staying longer, staying for maybe three three year terms. To me, that's too long. One three year term is is too short. If if you're asked to leave after one three year term, you're clearly not doing a very good job. But but boards need to be uh, you know continually renewed, um, and and that that was why I was sort of pretty insistent on 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 just doing two three year terms. That was why I was I I, I had left Anglo in uh, my last board meeting was May of of two thousand and eight. Did you have any inkling at that stage as to how badly wrong things were going in the property market and for lenders to it? Yeah, it's documented that there there, there were concerns. Um, the 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 brakes had been put on by Anglo ahead of ahead of some of the other banks in terms of new lending uh, in the Irish property market uh, in 2007, and that had be, that had come at the at the advice of of Tom Brown, who was director of lending in in Ireland at the time. And Ooh, I've we, been saying that as early as 2005. We, that detail, like uh, you know, whether it was two thousand five, two thousand six, he certainly had been saying it for some time, and and there was a view that it was being considered. But we slammed the brakes on, and in fact, the other bigger banks, AIB and Bank of Ireland, who had been dismissive of Anglo for so long, and then who had belatedly entered into that market to chase the Anglo pot of gold as they saw it for their shareholders. Um, they were caught unawares by the extent to which we slammed the brakes on, but we didn't slam the brakes on widely enough. That was that was the, that was in terms of the technical part of the problem. That was that was the problem. But as you know from from reading the book, my view is, and this was part of my frustration and part of what really led to my uh, starting to write the book was my frustration when I left the banking inquiry. And I was one of a small number of, of non-executive directors of banks that appeared in front of the banking inquiry. And my frustration was that I went away from there having discussed my relationship with Brian Cowan, a game of golf and Druid's Glen, uh, all sorts of what I considered to be largely extraneous issues. I understood they had there was political capital tied up in some of them in terms of political point scoring, um, and I had dealt with them completely honestly and and as comprehensively as I could do. 
But to me, the real issue was around the culture of the organization and the culture within the, the banking industry generally at that time. And the real lesson was the extent to which leadership, and this is why the, the focus in the book is on leadership and organizational culture, uh, the extent to which uh, leadership, poor leadership or leader, leadership that gets contaminated by its own success uh, can erode the culture of an organization and with devastating impact. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the points I make in the book, Matt, is that there's nothing new in this, that in the 15th century, the Dimitri Bank collapsed in Europe. It was the biggest bank in Europe. And that historians who have reviewed it said the collapse was down to, you know, greed and hubris. Um, and it was interesting to be finishing writing the book in the summer of 2021 and spending quite a bit of time trying to explore that same phenomenon within Anglo and the banking sector generally. And Davies happened. And, and, and the Davies problem was really down to corporate culture, you know, and arrogance within a corporate culture and down to greed and hubris. Why didn't the politicians want to hear that, do you think? It, it, it's, it's a bit like mercury. It's, it's more difficult to, you know, you can't get your hands around it. It's, it's some people would say it's kind of ephemeral. Um, it's, it's, it's not as tangible as who said what to whom. Did Brian Cowan spend time with Sean Fitzpatrick on his own when you were playing golf in Druids Glen? Is it possible that you didn't know that they discussed Anglo-Irish Bank because you weren't with them 100% of the time? Uh, it is possible, but I know Brian Cowan. And I know that it didn't happen. And I know it was never part of the agenda ahead of that meeting. There was a whole different um, dimension being being considered at, at that meeting, which I discuss in detail in, in, in the book. But the, the politicians and the nature of that kind of political exercise means that, and this isn't specific to that group of politicians and that particular inquiry, this is generally across the board, there, there is a there's a nature of, the nature of what they're trying to do very often is establish political capital for their own position going forward versus their political opponents. And I kind of get that. I mean, we all do. Um, but, but it's not necessarily serving the interests of society in the way in which a more, uh, a deeper dive into the really fundamental issues that, that were the cause of the problems. And it's interesting that, I mean, I use the term um, that, you know, that it's a bit like mercury because it's kind of soft and hard to define. But it is interesting that we now have a, 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 a banking culture board, which has a very specific task in terms of looking at the cultural issues around the management of our financial, financial services institutions. And if somebody had suggested such a thing 10 years ago, they would have been laughed out of court, I believe. And probably laughed at a court by a lot of people in the media as well, because there wouldn't have been an understanding or a sense of just how deep the problems can go when when leadership is not being held to account. When when, and this isn't you know you you started this section if you like talking about Sean Fitzpatrick. This isn't just about the failure of an individual. This is about the failure 
yes, of an individual, because there's always one person who's at the top of any leadership uh, pyramid, but, 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 but there's a leadership team within any organization. And that includes non-executive directors. And that goes back to the issue that you raised about, you know, that I'm pretty self-critical in the book. I was a non-executive director. I'll get back to Sean Fitzpatrick in a moment, but you just raised something there for me about banking culture. A lot of people seem to think that the banking culture was corrupted by the greed of executives wanting to earn more money. What do you think of the banking cap? A half a million euro ceiling on what a banker can earn. Does that mean that you actually stop the problems within the banking sector? Because that's what a lot of politicians seem to think. I think there's there there's little doubt that uh, excessive pay in any sector, um, earnings that people simply don't need, carries with it a risk. It carries a risk to that person. It carries a, a risk to a, a group of individuals within a, a phenomenally successful organization at a particular point in time. And it is very difficult once the you allow that to happen and you allow pay levels to increase uncontrolled, if you like, it becomes very difficult to say, wait, that's too much. We need to hold back here. We need to cur- we need to curb the levels of of pay or remuneration for for certain individuals, and and it is just another part of of the leadership piece because ultimately, great leaders surround themselves with people who they know to be fearless in terms of their questioning their probing and their their preparedness to say no enough i'm not i am not prepared to sign off on this i'm not prepared to accept this and um i i would say that the learning one of the learnings for me um and it's not going to rise it's unlikely to rise again in 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 at my stage in life but my, one of the learnings from for me or that i would like people to think about is that when you're part of a leadership group within the organization, the more successful the organization is, the more that group should encourage amongst themselves the need for doubt. Just to be doubting for the sake of it, to ask the horrible question, to ask the ridiculous question. And another important thing as well is not to be afraid as an individual to say, I don't understand. I don't know. This doesn't make sense to me. Please can somebody help me and not to be afraid to look stupid. Were some of those banking executives, though, greedy of the money been made by people to whom they were lending money? The Think developers. The developers, yeah. I don't, I never, I never had that sense. Well, I, some of them ended up being developers themselves. Yeah. Sean Fitzpatrick, enormous investments, and he wasn't the only Anglo senior banker who decided Matt, to do it for wasn't themselves. Just, that wasn't just a phenomenon in, in, in banking or in the financial services institutions. We know, you know, that there are many people within the professions who, who took the similar, a similar road. We, there are countless stories of people in the, in, in the, the big law firms who got themselves into, into difficulties because they, they were at one stage advising the developers or devi- advising these business people who were making phenomenal amounts of money and they were, that's all they were. They were purely advising them from a legal perspective. But then they started to invest and they started to, to, to look to make more money than they were making as partners in a big law firm or an accountancy practice and people within the media. It, that's human nature. I mean, uh, 
and that that's not going to change. But we need we need to be more alert to it. Is 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 really I suppose the point I'm making. You already mentioned uh, Sean Fitzpatrick, Brian Cohn, and around the golf in Druid's Glen. When Sean Fitzpatrick decided to reveal that detail for the book, the Anglo tapes that Brian Carey and Tom Lyons wrote, tell us about how you felt about that betrayal by Sean Fitzpatrick as you thought. Well, the background, the back, background to that is that the previous February he had phoned me to say he was thinking of writing a book and he was in the middle of all the, the, the trials, um, the criminal trials at the time and all the different accusations that were being made. And, and I had little or no contact with him. I did keep in touch with him, but it was infrequent. And I said, in, immediately said, Sean, that's not a good idea. You should not be writing a book. You, you're, you need to get through the end of the, the uh, legal process and then at that stage, if, if you still want to write a book, you should do so. But you should definitely not write a book um, because there's nothing you can put in a book that's going to change public opinion about you right now. And it may indeed undo, do, do you harm from uh, a legal perspective. And he was reluctant and he said that there were friends of his who'd suggested that he shouldn't call me about it because they kind of anticipated that would be my advice. And <clears throat> that they wanted him to speak with another uh, former public relations consultant called Jim Milton, who had long experience working with Tony O'Reilly, among others. And I said to Sean, that's a great idea. Do talk to Jim, because he'll give you a very cold clinical analysis of, of it. And you should definitely that, uh, listen to what he has to say, which he did. Um, and he came back to me a month later or a few weeks later and said, you know, I've spoken to Jim Milton. His advice is exactly the same. I'm not writing the book and that's fine. I said, okay, well, great. And that was the end of it until the following, er, very early the following year when he asked to meet me and uh, when we met, he he told me he'd written the book and the book was about to be published. That was the shock number one because in all that time he hadn't uh, revealed to me that he had, having heard what Jim had said as well as, as me, that he hadn't, uh, he, that he had changed his mind. But shock, the big shock was that he told me some of the things he'd included and he was immediately concerned about the fact that he had referenced to Tom and Brian about this 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 meeting and, and game of golf, which he knew was nothing to do with Anglo-Irish Bank. He knew it was, as I describe in the book, it had emerged from a concern I had in respect of Brian Cowan's need to get a wider lens uh, on on what was happening within the the uh, uh, within industry within within society at the time, and I had been pushing Brian to get a group of people who would be able to give him counsel, um, and so that was devastating for me because now I knew immediately where where this was going to go and how it would be interpreted, but also I had to. Uh, leave that meeting with John Fitzpatrick and, and phone all the other non-executive directors and tell them that this book was coming out. But I also had to phone the Taoiseach, Brian Cowan, and tell him that this was, this was coming out and, and how it would be interpreted, irrespective of the truth of what was, what was at play. He reacted um, very calmly and um, you know, in a way, it, 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 I often think about how it reflects the type of man he is, which is very different to the public profile. Um, and he is, 
he, he was extraordinarily calm, given that he knew as well as I did uh, what the implications would be of, of this going into the public domain. Let's go back to Sean Fitzpatrick, though, before we go on to Brian Cohen, uh, because you are very, very critical of him in the book. You are, about the way you say he manipulated the board, almost coerced them into various things, and uh, you don't paint a particularly good picture of the man. This was published only a matter of weeks before he died. So then, having written all that, how did you feel about it when you heard that he had died? Well, first of all, I, I, the manipulation that you refer to, I, I really refer to it. It happened to me on a number of occasions when I look back on things that had happened. And I also say in the book that that reflects poorly on me, that I was, you know, big enough, wise enough man to to, to not have allowed some of those things to have happened. And I also do pay tribute to to the great qualities he had and the reason he emerged as a leader and some of some of his characteristics and some some of his style things I, were extraordinarily powerful in the early years in terms of, of what he was able to achieve. But you're right, I do, uh, I am critical of him. I'm critical of the leadership cohort within Anglo, of which I was a member for a period of time. I felt very sad when when uh, I heard he had died, uh, shocked, uh, because because it was a sudden death, and uh, extremely sad for for his wife and and children. Um, but um, it 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 I suppose it it was deeply sh- or it additionally shocking because I had spent so much time thinking about him. Writing in writing about him, I had to think very deeply about him, think about the relationship we had had, and uh, provide the analysis that I did of of the leadership ultimately within Anglo, which was a seminal part of the collapse of the financial services industry. Would you have written it any differently now? No. So tell us a bit more about Brian Cowan, because you're not uncritical of Brian Cowan, but you're clearly very fond of him. Well, Brian and I are very good friends. Um, he's a man I admire a great deal. I'm not just fond of him. I have great admiration for him. Um, I have great admiration for his intellect, um, his humanity, um, his sense of humour, and... Um, so it's it's more than being fond of some person I worked with. This is a this is a friendship which is uh, long standing now, and um, he's someone whom I have long admired. And I think he did a he did he was one of the better 
one of the best politicians uh, we've had in this country over the last number of decades. I think he was a fantastic minister for foreign affairs. He was a much better minister for health than a lot of people give him credit for. He did phenomenal work in health with, uh, for people with disability, particularly in, in mental health. He took on issues within health which were which had long been left alone and he tackled them and he did some, you know, wonderful things. First time I, I think I engaged with you as a, as a journalist, he was, <clears throat> excuse me, Minister for then Transport, Energy and Communications. And he, you know, he was very young, he was inexperienced, but he took on initiatives with things like Aer Lingus. I remember before he became a minister, the extent to which as a Midlands uh, TD, he supported Eddie O'Connor in trying to reform Board Namona and uh, tackled some of the excesses of the of the trade union movement, and only some of them uh, were could be described as excesses. But when when Eddie O'Connor was trying to transform uh, Board Namona and some of the industrial practices, Brian, as a as a young local TD in in the Midlands of Ireland, was was supportive. So um, the interesting thing about Brian Cowan is is the extent to which he was an intellectual politician he was he was it was his first instinct was to look at things from an intellectual perspective and to examine them from an intellectual perspective and and i think that uh he he his ministerial career was not without errors not without um flaws but 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 overall his ministerial career was was exceptional it was also very long and it was very he he was you know i i believe even by the time he was halfway through his term as, as finance minister he he was beginning to flag from an energy point of view that's interesting because i was wondering when you were going to mention finance because you went through health and foreign affairs and you went through transport and all his earlier ministries because there might have been a perception that he was a little bit asleep at the wheel during his time as Minister for Finance, that he didn't realise what was going on. And then effectively as Taoiseach was firefighting to deal with the issues that perhaps he should have dealt with when he was Minister for Finance. Look, I think that, that in a speech he gave in 2017, I think, um, probably one of the last public speeches he's given where he was awarded a, an honorary doctorate, um, he reflects on the lack of of imagination in politics. He talks about the intellectual piece, talks about the the rigor and the assessment and analysis of issues. Um, but he he uses a, a number of paragraphs from the writings of John O'Donoghue, the philosopher, um, uh, to to explain why he his regret uh, as a politician was not to have focused more on the use of imagination. And I personally believe, and I helped to write that speech, I don't know for certain, but my sense is that Brian's regret around imagination and thought and that philosophical piece that, that O'Donoghue had, had written so eloquently about was to do with his time in, 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 in finance, not to do with his, his stewardship of the country as Taoiseach. But when he was as Minister for Finance, I believe Brian had an opportunity to tilt Fianna Fáil back away from right of centre to left of centre in economic uh, management of the country. 
and and he he hesitated, I, I I believe, to do that. But that was his natural instinct. Now this is my analysis. I'm and I may not be correct, but my sense is that that was that was where Brian made the error. That that if you were to look at at Brian Cowan's career made an error is too clinical an assessment but ultimately that that what he he could have done was to just gently start moving fianofoil away from center uh, right of center which is not its historically not its traditional place back towards the left of center and he didn't do that and that i think is 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 a regret you wrote a lot of speeches from but you do express disappointment in the book that you didn't get a sort of a formal role when he was Taoiseach, to work with him, that you would have loved to have worked in government with him. If you had that role, what would you have told him to have done differently? Who knows? But I mean, because you're dealing with, you know, you're looking at it from the outside and no matter how close I was to him, I was always an outsider. And that was one of the advantages I brought, I think, in terms of some of the discussions we had. But but uh, I, I'm not sure I can give any sort of... Uh, a profound uh, answer to that question, Matt. I think ultimately I would have probably wanted to um, address some of the, 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 the issues that politic, politicians like to put off. Uh, politicians like to delay taking hard decisions. And I understand why. Because the electoral system... <laughs> Uh, the electoral cycle means that, you know, if you take an average length of a government, at whatever it is, three years, um, if you want to take real hard policy decisions and change direction in a very fundamental way, that's very, very difficult to do if you know that the consequences of that change may be in the short term less than positive and yet you have to face the electorate before the positive the real positive start to flow from whatever that decision is so it is uh, it's it look it, I, I try and make the point in in an analyzing the the politi- his political management just how difficult this is and one of the things that we don't i think including the media we don't do enough is give you know, space to our politicians, give credit to our politicians, allow them as a collective, if you like, breathe more. And we don't respect them. I mean, as, as generally speaking, as, as citizens, we don't have enough respect for our politicians, for our elected politicians. I'm convinced of that. And I'm convinced most of, most of these men and women, uh, are, are going into politics with the very best of intentions. I think most of them do the best they can. Um, but I think that uh, there's a, a, the, almost like a constant barrage of criticism, uh, which makes it diff- even more difficult uh, for them to, to go about their business in, 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 uh, in, a, in a manner which can effect change. You do have some criticisms in the book of him. How has he reacted to those criticisms? Well, I've seen him and we've talked and we, we, we you know, Brian has this tremendous uh, sense of self, which is there is no pomposity about the man at all. Um, and so he, he, 
we've had you know one conversation about the book which was brief he said he enjoyed reading it we'd a laugh about certain aspects of it and um there you know but i wouldn't have expect i wouldn't have expected anything more than that to be honest one of the main things that you write about in the book is your time as chairman of Paddy Power Bookmakers. And it's quite clear now that you deeply regret your involvement in the gambling industry. Tell us why. Because if, if, uh, if, if, if gambling as an industry had touched my family in any way, shape or form, I would have been horrified. And I, I don't gamble. I've never gambled. And I think that what technology has done to gambling and enable gambling to do more correctly is, is, is so damaging to society that to have been involved at all is, is uh, distressing. And that's not an exaggeration. Um, and so I'm not alone in that. There are other people within the industry who have similar regrets I may be alone in, in, in writing about it as, in as detailed a way as I do. And I may also be alone in terms of believing that you have a responsibility beyond behaving ethically within a business. So for me, when I look at Anglo and Paddy Power, and this has been this analysis that I have done in the book has been misinterpreted in some quarters where I say ultimately that I am more ashamed or more troubled by my role in Paddy Power than an Anglo. I behaved professionally in both companies. I did the best I could do in both companies. I didn't do enough in Anglo. I wasn't good enough as a professional non-executive director because ultimately if I had been on my game as I should have been, which is back to this question of business of curiosity and analysis and probing, if I had been, then I would have picked up some things, I'm certain, if I had been, but I wasn't. But there were other things going on within Anglo which meant that the business wasn't at all times being run ethically. If you look at Paddy Power, and I was chairman for, for six years in exact parallel to the time I was on the board of Anglo-Irish Bank, everything that was done by the board in terms of governance, in terms of legalities, in terms of performance and behaviours was completely above board, was completely ethical. The relationships between me as the chairman and uh, John O'Reilly and then Patrick Kennedy as chief executive, the interaction with the whole board, the interaction with management, everything was done by the book. But the problem was the business. There was a moral issue about the business, not the way the business was run, but the nature of the business itself. And this is an area where people are understandably Many people are uncomfortable about the moral, even, even the issue of the word morality being addressed in the context of business. And 
for me, and morality is clearly personal, for me, that six years as chairman of Paddy Power failed the morality test for me. Not just now, looking back on it, but at the time it should have done. Why but did you get involved did, in the first didn't. place? Well, I had been, a, I had been an advisor to... to uh, Stuart Kenny, the, the, one of the founders of the company, at the time the company was being formed. I had been very involved in the development of the brand, worked with them on the, on the public relations right up to the flotation. Uh, and um, then I, I was asked to um, go on the board. And I, I, I didn't stop and think about the business of gambling. I saw it as an opportunity to become... Uh, a non-executive director and then chairman of a of a of a young Irish company that was was on this growth trajectory, and I was excited and buzzed by it. So the corporate strut that I referred to in the book was 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 already at play, and my capacity to make really uh, high quality decisions around what I wanted to do, what I wanted to be associated with. And what I didn't want to be associated with was diminished. That's what happens. And and when I look back, look back on it, and I, 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 you know, I'm not just doing this now. I, I, I became very active in 2015 in in the UK against fixed odds betting terminals. And I wrote for the London Times. I did a piece on on Panorama, where I joined, if you like, the lobby against um, the amount of money that that people in in Britain could could place on these machines called fixed odds betting terminals in betting shops in the UK. That worked. I I advocated at a at a conference here in, in Dublin in 2016. I, I raised the whole question of advertising. How the how could you be sitting watching a football match in the middle of the afternoon with kids and and the be you know advertising for 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 betting companies um and not for booze companies i i i spoke at a conference in 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 trinity in 2016-2017 these issues have have troubled me now for quite some time yeah, but when did the realization others. drop i i think it was it was when i was when i was asked about fixed odds betting terminals in 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 the U, in the uk and that was 2015, I think, Matt. And I remembered that when, uh, in 2004, these machines, which were which are really egregious form of gambling, extraordinarily uh, damaging um, to 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 a great many people. The, there was a the the industry here in Ireland lobbied to the government to have them brought into a license for betting shops in Ireland, and. We as a board uh, sanctioned that Stuart Kenny would would lobby against the industry, and and he did so very successfully. And and government denied the industry's uh, ambition. And I remember thinking when I was approached by a number of people in in the UK about this in two thousand fourteen two thousand fifteen, and I started looking at what was going on. I remember thinking, how could we have justified to ourselves as a board that we would stop this in, in, in coming into Ireland in 2004, and yet we had betting shops in, in London that had them uh, in 2005, 2006. 
and uh, you know there was an operational reason we couldn't have opened betting shops in 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 the UK and not had them because people you, know, you would have lost a very significant amount of traffic but it it did generate then create that kind of bring right to the fore that mar- that moral issue why did that conversation not emerge a decade earlier i i think it didn't because a you know the 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 corporate thing is you get you get into this mode of behavior where it's you know your your responsibility is to the shareholders right so so if you're a uh, an executive or you're a non-executive um director of a company and you're being paid to be uh, a steward to help steward the company's growth in the interests of the shareholders then that's what you do and your focus is on the shareholders and you operate within in 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 the law so this is the friedman um view of of uh, you know economics and how the world works that that the business of business is business that provided you operate within the law uh, that that you do what you have to do to to grow grow the the company to make to increase the value for the shareholders. That's your sole responsibility. Now, that's changed in the last decade. There is a there is a move back which is becoming very profound, particularly in the energy sector because of fossil fuel the fossil fuel industry, uh, where where there's the institutions. And some of the biggest institutions in the world are starting to talk about the need to temper profit growth if, it, if there's any evidence that that profit growth is being achieved at a cost to the social good. And certainly, if there is harm being done to society, then people like Larry Fink, the chief executive of BlackRock, uh, the biggest institutional shareholders in the world, is writing extensively, as you would know, about the need for the growth of value to be to be tempered if there's evidence that that growth is being achieved at, in the case of, of the energy industry, is, is being achieved at a cost to the climate crisis, if, the, if it's adding to the climate crisis. So, so whatever about, not about doing social good, you should not do social harm. And I, 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 I've, I've studied this. Um, I did a, an online course with Oxford University on sustainability uh, within the last 18 months. I've studied this. I understand it from that perspective. And then I, I, I raised the question, well, we know that the excesses of gambling does social harm. So does the same principle not apply? So at that point, I spoke with Stuart Kenny and Ian Armitage, who was the first institutional investor in, in Paddy Power. And I said, we have, we, we have a shared view of, of, of the gambling industry, but surely we should try and focus on the institutions and take the same argument to them about social harm that they are applying in terms of the, the energy sector.
what about state intervention? You mentioned advertising. And if one thing Paddy Power would have been known for was not just its innovative advertising, but also various stunts that it actually would have pulled off to achieve more publicity. So weren't, wasn't your firm possibly guilt, more guilty than nearly anyone else in Ireland of using advertising oh, and publicity? There's no question. No question. Yeah. But next, at the time, question. <laughs> but at the yes. time, you just didn't see it. But you see, it was a very different. Uh, I mean, this isn't uh, my doing a sort of a, a Pontius Pilate on it now. I mean, this, but 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 there was a very different industry then. I mean, you remember, you know what it was like. I mean, uh, phone betting then was people would lift the phone and and they'd phone an, an operator and place a bet. Um, and so when I say about technology, I mean, there are three waves, as I recall it, within within the, the gambling industry. The first wave was, uh, and this was before I became a, a, a director of the company, Paddy Power was like, you know, most of the other betting companies at the time in the in the 90s would have would have had, you know, probably pretty basic shops where people went in, they placed a bet and they got out there, got out of there as quickly as possible. And there was a very deliberate uh, uh, approach taken to, to gentrify those shops and to make them places that people would go and they would sit and they could uh, have a coffee and, and chat and it became social environments. That made it easier for more people to go in and out of betting shops. That was the first phase. Second phase was the internet. The internet comes along and suddenly people can vote, or vote, people can bet on, on elections or they can bet on anything at all via uh, their computer. They can go on their computer and they can bet. And, and then that, that means they can do it any time of the day or night. Um, but the real damage came with the advent of the smartphone. And so the technology improves further and the third phase, and now people cannot, can, can do what they had been doing on their computers or those who chose to do so could do it on their phone 24-7 at any time of the day or night all over the world. And importantly, as all of that was happening, the gambling companies were expanding their suite of uh, products. So they were online casinos, online poker, online bingo, online, the, then the development, of, you know, alongside the development of the, the wider sports book. So you can bet on anything, but you can also bet on anything now 24-7. Okay, so how do you deal with that? Because prohibition against the likes of alcohol has never worked because people will always drink. People will always gamble. Of course. And, and, and So how do you actually regulate it to make it safer, less damaging, less risky to people? Well, there are certain things that you can do. Um, and, and we've set up myself and Ian Armitage and, and Stuart Kenny have set up a, an organisation called Stop Gambling Harm. It's not even an organisation. It's, it's just a website and we put time into it and we are taking the argument to both the uh, politicians, the legislators in Ireland, the UK and elsewhere, if needs be, uh, as people who have a, a unique blend of experience because Stuart founded the company, I was a non-executive chairman and Ian was an institutional shareholder. And what we're saying is, we don't want to stop the gambling industry. We don't even want to stop the growth of the gambling industry. But what we want the gambling industry to do is to introduce certain curbs on things that are known to be doing damage, more damage than, than, than other aspects of gambling. So, for example, 
the under 25s it is clinical fact that the brain is continuing to develop until until the age of 25 and uh, the discernment the qualitative piece around decision making is still evolving until 25 there is no distinction generally speaking there is no distinction made between the, uh, the for the age of those who are gambling online and so what we what we are saying is there needs to be ve- there needs to be strict rules around the under 25 stricter rules around the under 25 the other and there are five specific things they include that another one is advertising that needs to be that, that that requires legislation. You're talking about self-regulation one moment, and then you're talking about things that government no, needs no, to no, do. We're not talking, no, no, we're, what we're talking about, and be clear about this: we don't trust the industry, right? So, so what we're saying is that, that we're going after the legislators and regulators, who are the people who the only people who can change laws on advertising are, are legislators for example but but then in an area like the under 25s and and I give you one other example Matt is is the distinction between a, a sports book betting and a casino people have one account there's no skill involved in in a casino there can't be it's it's all random, right? There is some potentially some skill and some knowledge being applied when people are using when people are betting in in on a sports book. We're saying is those two accounts must be separated. You you cannot be allowed or should not be allowed to have an a, a sports book the one those two under the one account. Okay, now that's something that can is not the legit for the legislators to do. That's for the industry to do. But if management and boards won't do it, then. The institutions should do it. And why have the institutions the power to do it? They have the power to do it because they own the companies. They're the critical shareholders. And also, they see twice a year, they see the chief executive, the finance director. They see other people within the company come in, present their their annual or or half-year results, and they have an opportunity to say to them, look, in the same way as we're asking the fossil fuel companies to change, we are because of cl- the climate crisis. Okay, that's an existential crisis. But nonetheless, this is this stuff is doing damage to society. There is clear evidence all over the world that it's dam- doing damage to society. So we would much rather, as shareholders, make a slightly uh, smaller profit, sm- slightly smaller return on on our investment, but know that you have turned the dial down because you've tackled the under twenty fives and you've made the distinction between the. Uh, the, the the sports book and and the online casinos, for example. What are the chances of that happening, though? Do you see? Do you sense a political will to actually take this issue on? In Ireland, yeah, it's interesting. You know, we we we're getting more traction in the UK. Um, we're getting to see people in Westminster. We um, since we launched Stop Gambling Harm, than we are here. Um, and that's interesting, um, but but I I think that the the new thing that we're doing is the institutional piece. You know, lots of people have been lobbying government about this for for years, ourselves included, as individuals, and we are going to continue to do that. Government here and government in the UK. That that's our focus. But <clears throat> the new piece is the institutions. Nobody has today, as I'm as I'm aware, gone after the 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 big institution and the pension funds and said, hey, 
you've got a responsibility here and you have the power to influence change. There's an awful lot of other people depending on revenues from gambling, though. Including governments. Yes. And also sports, which is something that you're really, really involved in as a sports agent. How many football clubs, for example, and even sports themselves, are dependent on the revenue from gambling and then the television stations to pay for the rights then depend on selling advertising to these gambling clubs there's so many vested interests here of course there are vested interests but so there was was a booze I can remember I remember the protestations over curbs on on on, uh, booze companies being allowed to sponsor sport and people saying oh it'll be the death knell of X or Y Z sport It, it didn't happen there's always money around, particularly for high-profile sports. There's money around which will be found to replace the money that is inappropriate. And it is inappropriate. The, ex- the excessive involvement of the gambling industry in sport is inappropriate, period. And there are, there are I mean, look, let's, for once, let's give credit. <laughs> there, are, there are people who own clubs like St. Patrick's Athletic, Andrade United, who have said, we will not take money from gambling companies. And let's give credit to the FAI. This, this, the, the FAI Cup final just gone in 2021, the LED advertising around the pitch included the stop gambling harm message. Um, and, you know, that, that, these are small things, but they're straws in the wind as to what can happen. You mentioned a phrase earlier, which appears a number of times in your book, corporate strut. And I really enjoyed that because it has struck me that there are many business people who sort of get caught up in their own legend, which goes back to almost what we were talking about earlier in you writing this particular book and it been different to what I would imagine many other business people would have written. Tell us a little bit more about what I would sort of maybe assume to be the arrogance that certain people have when they're making money and they regard themselves as been successful, masters of the universe almost, even if it's just in little old Ireland. Yeah, look, arrogance is, a, is an interesting word, isn't it? I mean, because you and I both know people who operate in, in the media and, and who, who have a, a, the equivalent of a, of a corporate strut. So um, it's... It, it it it's not so much arrogance, I think, as a sense of being. So yeah, look, arrogance is uh, part and parcel of uh, the the web that's built around success in any area. So we were talking in about the gambling sector, and we morphed into a little bit about sport. And if you look at the, you know, the high profile sports people and you look at the behavior of, of Novak Djokovic in terms of, of Australia, the Australian Open a number of weeks ago and all of that, some people will look at that and say, wasn't he right? Wasn't he brave? Wasn't he strong? Hasn't he an independent mind? And other people look and say, he's an arrogant, you know what, right? Now, um, who's to know what, which of those is, is, is correct? But if you get to a certain level within any sector, I mean... You're a high achiever in your sector, you know, as a young journalist starting out just as a print journalist, and then you you, you built a career as a business journalist, then a wider uh, sort of media perspective, but then took on broadcasting and a current affairs broadcasting, sports broadcasting. By any definition, you're a high achiever in, 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 the, wor- in, in, the, Irish, in the world of Irish media, a, a really high achiever. And with achievement comes a recognition. 
particularly in a small market, right? Like like Ireland, a small country like Ireland. And so you're more people are are if if they achieve at all are more widely recognized within that small small community and to keep your feet firmly on the ground and not have that corporate strut and not to behave in a manner which allows people rightly or wrongly accuse you of being arrogant or suggest that you're arrogant is extraordinarily difficult but what is the most important aspect of that, I believe, is how that affects your judgment. And other people are dependent on your judgment. They're not necessarily dependent on whether your profile is being arrogant or not, but they're, they're, they are dependent on how, on the judgments you're making, which they don't even see. So the shareholders in a company, the employees in a company, they are utterly dependent upon the, the judgments that you make. And if your corporate strut is such that your judgment has been impacted by how well you feel about yourself, about how confident you are, and you lose a sense of perspective about yourself, about the people around you, and about the people about the organization you're working for or representing, um, that has the potential to do great damage. And in, in my opinion, you know, I, I, I talk about, uh, I make a, a comparison at the end or attempt to make a comparison through my experience of working with the FAI, the IRFU and the GAA, okay? And, and so the leadership piece, which we folk, talked about in, in Anglo and talked about in politics, it... It, this is an issue right across the board in every organization. Okay, so you've worked. Okay, so you've worked as an advisor for many years, both externally and then internally, effectively as a chairman. How much of a problem is it that you have when you have strong leaders who either don't brook any dissension, or they surround themselves with lackeys who might actually pretend to give a certain degree of dissension, but essentially aren't. How prevalent is that and how much of a problem does that cause? I think what's more I think what's more prevalent and what's more dangerous is the leader or leaders who who give the impression of wanting uh, to get outside perspectives and get different views and and to be challenged but who don't really um, and you know again that's there's an element to which that's part of human nature that that we all, in whatever area where we we work, we want to get the contrary contrary view. We want people to challenge us, but do we really? And um, I I think that my experience would be that that where where I've seen leadership fail, and where I have been part of a leadership cohort that has failed, and that's you know on 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 quite a number of occasions, uh, it's where there's been a pretense at being really interested in the outside perspectives, in the contrarian view. Um, and, I, and I think that that's, I also think that's partly a male problem. Um, and I'm not equipped to, 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 to talk about that, but I have spoken to a number of people who are, like Ian Robertson in, in, in Trinity College, the clinical psychologist, you know, there, there's a part of the male makeup, um, and that's not making an excuse, but it is just, 
I think clinically the case that that we have a different way of looking at things and and that I think one of the benefits that will come with more women involved in leadership roles is that 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 will be balanced out a bit. Yeah, how poorly has Irish business done in promoting women into senior executive positions and also into boardrooms because of the boardrooms that you served on, how few were populated by women? Oh, very few. I mean, and and look, the, the, the great thing is in the last five, ten years, that seems to be changing from what I from what I can see, it's changing you know, pretty quickly and, and but not not quickly enough. And I think if if we look outside of, of business, the same is true. You know, the, the, and we look in politics. I mean, uh, I don't mean in Ireland, I mean globally. Uh, the, you know, that the, the, having um, a transfusion of, of uh, in, in areas that are critical to a well-run society, be that politics, business, across, you know, across other areas, uh, having a transfusion of of more women into the into the uh, into the leadership uh, bloodstream would be a good thing. We're going to have to have you back another day to talk about sport on its own, separate podcast. But I want to finish this one by asking you about what sort of reaction you've had from people to your book. And have people sort of accused you? And it maybe Paul Kimmage, I think, when he wrote about the Tour de France, was accused of pissing in the soup. That you know you don't actually. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, that was his experience in relation to telling it as it is, because you've told it as it is in relation to a lot of corporate behaviour in twenty first century Ireland. So, what sort of reaction have you had from your peers, or are they just staying quiet about it all? I haven't had much reaction, to be truthful, Matt. It's 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 um, you know I haven't. Uh, 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 if I if I had had hostile reaction, I I would tell you, um, I haven't had much positive. I have you know it's been kind of neutral. I haven't really heard from many people about it to be to be honest. And in the wake, for example, of Sean Fitzpatrick's death, did anybody give out to you for having said negative things about him in the book? No, but I don't think people. You know, I don't think that. Um, you know that 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 I wouldn't have expected people to really. Is that the Irish way that actually if you do write things like that or say it, you just, nobody says anything? It's just sort of swept under the carpet to an extent. I, look, I don't think there's, you know, let's, first of all, it has, the book hasn't, there aren't that many people who've bought the book because it hasn't <laughs> sold very well. Hopefully so. more will happen. No, no, but I just think, you know, it, it, so it's it's a kind of a, I've used the term before, it's kind of a niche book. It's, it's a you know, it's, it's, it's going to be of interest to a very narrow group of people, really. Um, and so um, I, I don't think there's any, you know, particular motivation as to why I haven't had much by way of feedback, good, bad or indifferent. Um, I think it's just the reality that it's, it's, a, it's a book that has a, a narrow enough band of, of uh, interest, I think. Fintan Drury, it's a fascinating book and anyone involved in business or politics would be well served by reading it. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Matt. Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul.